What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This program is just for you if you are a non-Catholic and you've got questions about the Catholic faith, you'd love to get those questions answered. Or perhaps you are a Catholic, but uh, there are still some questions that you really need to get an answer for. Maybe a, a friend or a co-worker has asked you this or that, and you're trying to get those answers let us help you with that. Here is our phone number for uh, non-Catholics and Catholics. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. We'll lead off with one of those in a moment here. The address ctc at EWTN. Com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put that question of yours in the comments box, and uh, Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One, and off we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? You know what? Doing great. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Still feels like uh, kind of summer out there, doesn't it? Well, you know, a couple of years ago, we had an October in Alabama where the the temperature hit 100 degrees. Do you remember that? I do. It was crazy. First time in my life I'd ever seen 100 degrees in October, but oh well. I understand that a lot of the uh, United States is going to be uh, cooling off considerably over the weekend, so we'll see how that works out. So. Interesting. Uh, anonymous email that we received. This person says, Our Catholic Church has been showing the video series the Chosen. I'm concerned that parishioners will believe as fact from Scripture some of the fictional additions to that series. What's your opinion of The Chosen? Thanks and God bless you, Anonymous. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So, personal opinion? Sure. Only my personal opinion. Okay. I, I don't love a lot of film and television adaptations of sacred Scripture for the reason that you just stated, right? That, that they are always some director's imaginative reconstruction of the biblical narrative, and often uh, he inserts his own ideas based on his own theology or presuppositions, and because good storytelling is compelling and memorable, mm -hmm. you almost can't help but have that director's images enter into your mind, and so when you encounter the biblical narrative, that's what's going to come to your consciousness. Right. Um, you know, as p listeners to this radio show know, sacred scripture is, of course, First in my uh, canon of theological works, of course, being inspired by God, but not quite inspired by God, but deeply precious to me are the Chronicles of Narnia of C.S. Lewis. And I don't like to watch the film adaptations of Lewis novels for the same reason, because I don't want somebody else's imaginative reconstruction being the image that comes in my mind when I watch those films. Um, and, uh, and as I understand it, The Chosen is not produced by... Uh, you know, a Catholic director, and so you're, you you have some uh, theological interpretation there that is uh, in tension with the Catholic faith. But sure. this is, for me, this is, I even take this view with regard to Catholic directors. There's a 
very celebrated movie about the life of Christ that I will not name, and uh, but it was very popular in Catholic circles a few years back. And if you like it, that's fine. Go, you go watch it. But I remember somebody said to me, Anders, you, you've got to watch this film. I said, Well, why do I have to watch this film? <laughs> and they said, Well, if, you know, you just you just don't even know what it was like until you watch this film. You got to watch this film so you can see what it was really like. <clears throat> And I said, okay, you have determined me. Yeah. I will never watch this yeah. film. Yeah. Right? They didn't realize what they were saying. You should have said, <laughs> right. hmm, stop right there. That's, Think about what you just that's, said. That's the best argument you've given me for not watching that yeah. film. Now, am I saying that I think people shouldn't watch fictional depictions of the life of Christ? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, that's my personal choice. Um, you know, but, but theatrical depictions of Christ's life are an important part of Catholic tradition. We have the passion plays from the Middle sure. Ages. I mean, that, that, so I'm not condemning the genre. Okay. I am acknowledging the concern. Okay, very good. Thanks so much for your anonymous email. Here is a, uh, a question from Gene, who was watching us on YouTube yesterday. Couldn't get to it because we ran out of time. Gene says, I have a Protestant pastor friend who does not believe in the Trinitarian aspect of God. He only baptizes in the name of Jesus. How do I refute this claim? It's so bizarre to me. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the, the Jesus-only movement in Protestantism is particularly strong in certain segments of the Pentecostal world. Okay. Um, is the resurrection of the ancient heresy of Sabellianism. And the Sabellians believed that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were three different modes of the one divine being. Mm. And so sometimes you'll, you'll find well-meaning people who try to give analogies to help understand the mystery of the Trinity, and they'll say, mm. um, you know, well, the Trinity is like, um, you know, uh, water, steam, and ice. Yeah. No, it's nothing like water, steam, and ice. Or right? or a shamrock. Right? right, right. Well, that that's another. That's a different bad analogy. Okay. The water, steam, and ice analogy, which is a terrible analogy for the Trinity, uh, is exactly the heresy of modalism. It's the idea that there's a one substance there that exists in different modes, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that's the way they understand Father, Son, and Spirit. So they think that Jesus is just is just one mode of the one divine being. Uh, that 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 view was ruled out by the Church a long time ago, uh, for the obvious reason that in sacred scripture Christ is depicted in a kind of interpersonal relationship with the Father, and so that relationship is not a sham. Uh, the Son really does have an interpersonal relationship with the Father. And in fact, a, a major focus of redemption is that we enter into the filiation, the Sonship of Christ, and mm -hmm. we come to relate to the Father as through Jesus, as Christ relates to the Father. And if, if, if Father and Son are not distinct personalities, then, then there's no interpersonal relationship. And yet there is one divine being. I mean, the unicity of God is a biblical and, and Catholic doctrine, one that philosophy can confirm. Um, and, uh, and so you have the Son who is fully God, and that's clearly stated, especially in the Gospel of John. Uh, and yet it's some, in, in some way, in relationship or distinct from the Father. And so the, the formulation the Church arrived at was one God, three persons. Mm -hmm. um, now, in terms of the baptismal formula, I mean, Scripture is pretty clear on the baptismal formula. Yeah. Go forth and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you got that. There it is. And uh, Gene, thanks so much uh, for your question via YouTube. I know that you posted it yesterday. Hopefully you're with us today and you got the answer that you were after. Thanks again for your question. In a moment, we're going to get to Vicki in North Carolina, Jim on Long Island. A couple lines open for you right now. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. 
It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders. If you have a question you would like uh, Dr. David to uh, answer for you, here's the number to call, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Looks like we have three lines open at this exact moment. Be a great time for you to call, 833-288-EWTN. Let me tell you about a wonderful book now available from EWTN's religious catalog. Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle has a new book. It's an ideal resource for the Eucharistic revival. 30 Marian Eucharistic visits adoring Jesus with his mother will inflame your heart with love for Jesus' Eucharistic heart through the heart of his mom. It'll help you enter into meditation with Jesus and Mary as never before. It'll also open your heart to receive the graces available from the Sacred Mysteries. A wonderful book available right now, EWTNRC.com is the address. The name of the book again, 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by Donna Marie Cooper Cooper O'Boyle. Do check it out, EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. All right, if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin on the phones uh, today with Vicki in North Carolina, listening today and watching us on YouTube. Hey there, Vicki, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders. Thank you so much for your show. I love it. I've learned more about the Catholic faith and the Bible from you. But I have, I, I take uh, Bible study classes, and I have a lot of friends that are not Catholic, and they believe that you are saved by faith alone, or that if you commit a sin, the same sin, so lying and deceiving on a daily basis, but if you repent at the end of the day to God, he will forgive you of those sins. And then you can go on for the rest of your life doing exactly the same thing. I'm looking at Hebrews 10:26, and it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there, are, there no longer remains sacrifice for sins. Can you explain that to me? Um, Jimmy, please. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the standard Protestant belief that your friends have, and this is typical of most Protestants, is the idea that by faith alone, God accepts them for Christ's sake, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and past, present, and future sins, and if they have faith in Christ, his righteousness is credited to them and they'll be accepted for Jesus' sake regardless of the quality of their moral lives. And while Protestants do typically practice uh, repentance, you know, they'll say they're sorry, contrition, repentance for someone asks for forgiveness. Uh, if you press them, they would they would say, well, yeah, that that's a kind of a good practice to inculcate the holy life, but, you know, if you died without that, you're not going to be lost. If you're really saved, quote-unquote, uh, then even if you if you don't make a particular act of contrition at the end of the day, you would, you'd still go to heaven when you die. So it's a, it's a good thing to do, but it's not ultimately necessary for salvation. And so it's, it's actually worse than what you suggested, Vicki. Uh, the position for most Protestants <clears throat> is that even grave sin, like murder or apostasy or adultery, um, would, not, uh, would not eliminate someone from salvation if they genuinely had the Holy Spirit in their heart. If they had made a genuine act of faith in God and, and received his grace and forgiveness, then, that's, then, they're, then they're taken care of forever. Now, most Protestants wouldn't—some would, but most would not regard that as a license to sin— 
uh, they would say if someone was cavalier about sin, it would probably call into doubt the reality of their conversion at the outset. But, you know, you know, they could have a slip, even a big slip, and it wouldn't ultimately affect their security before God. That's not the Catholic view. It's not the biblical view. And as what St. Paul teaches is that, yeah, faith uh, is absolutely necessary, and, and grace is absolutely necessary. And the works of the law, meaning things like circumcision and the dietary codes of the Old Testament, those things aren't going to save you. Uh, but when you have faith, God gives you the grace to change your life. Grace is, is a supernatural help to transform your character so that you can effectively love God and love neighbor, and God can accept you and you can be saved. And, and Paul goes on to warn us in many places in his letters, but Galatians 5 would be one of them, that people who have received the Spirit of Christ and yet persist in, in immoral behavior will by no means inherit the kingdom of God. And that's in line with the teaching of the book of Hebrews, that if we persist in sinning after we've received God's grace without repentance, uh, then uh, then we are, as it were, crucifying the Son of God all over again, and that, and we can't presume on his mercy if we are not contrite, if we're not willing to be reconciled to him. So you're, you're correct to point to that text. There are others as well. And, and, you know, from a Catholic view, the underlying logic of it works like this. Like, what is salvation ultimately but union with God? That's what we're aiming at. We want to be united with the greatest good, the highest good of truth, goodness, and beauty. And what could it mean to be united to God? What kind of union would we have united to God by faith if we were at enmity with him in our will? And that's basically the Protestant position, that you can have a kind of notional union with God, and yet... In your heart of hearts, you could will and do evil and still be savingly united to God. Well, what kind of union would that be like? It'd be like saying, you know, I, I, I'm going to marry you, uh, but, uh, but I plan on uh, committing fornication and adultery, and I'm not going to be faithful to you. Well, that's, that's, not, that's not the kind of union we mean by marriage, no, right? No. And it's not the kind of loving relationship that anyone would desire with their spouse. Well, it's no kind of salvation— if we cannot enjoy the fruition of God's goodness. And how can we do that if, if our will and our mind and our whole person is not united to him, right? So, so what the Catholic Church promises is not some impossible thing, not, not some heavy yoke that we can't bear. It promises to give us what we need to be united with our greatest good in the totality of our being. Vicki, thanks so much uh, for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. I guess we should point out uh, that many Catholic churches offer Bible studies. Uh, many Catholic dioceses. I know that our our uh, cathedral here in town is going to be offering a Bible study coming up where you're not going to run into stuff like that, this. That is absolutely true. You're there right. you go. Let's go now to Jim on Long Island listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jim, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, good afternoon. Um, love the show. Thank and, you. Uh, David, I, I was going to ask that what what kind of motivation can you give to the troops? And I'm an old Catholic, went to Catholic school. I'm in my 70s, so I, you know, guilt and worry is my middle name, and I, you know, everything's a sin. So that's just the way it's going to be. I can't change, regardless of education. However, I have three daughters. Uh, one's gay. They're in their 40s, thinking people. And I've heard the arguments about gay people. I don't always like it. I, I don't. I, I don't like an organization that rejects people. Um, I mean, if you're out there drowning and a gay guy comes up to you, what do you say? I'm sorry, you're gay. We don't want you to be involved in our life. So, 
sounds ridiculous, but it's the argument that my kids have told me for over 20, 30 years. Yeah. And then, of course, my gay daughter says, what about these priests? And now I hear in Baltimore, which she quoted to me, uh, the lawsuit says, lost the, uh, 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 they can continue to file lawsuits on these priests. And she brings it up a good point and says, you know what's interesting is when they came out, the lawyers were like all upset that they changed the statute of limitations. They increased it. So there's going to be much more money against the church or coming up with more money. And she says, but I never heard a priest come out and say, this is despicable. This is horrible. It should be extended. No, the lawyer was very lawyerly, which I know lawyers have to be. But how do you say to the general here to motivate the troops to go to Catholic school when I've got... I don't know, just a lot of rejection. And as an old dude, yep, I know. I can right. speak to that. I can speak to that. I really appreciate the call, and I'm really sorry for your suffering. I mean, it sounds like you've had a pretty rough time, and your family's been under a lot of stress and worry, maybe antagonism from the church. And I'm I'm profoundly sorry for that. So, uh, first of all, let me let me acknowledge the reality of mistreatment of Catholics by the Catholic Church, and that is a real thing. I have experienced it. Tom has experienced it. Yep. None of us are happy about it, and we make no apologies for it. I mean, we've been, some of us have been victimized by members of the clergy or hierarchy or other Catholics. Mm-hmm. Perhaps some of us have been the victimizers. Maybe I've hurt somebody by my words or actions, and they blame the church for my faults, right? Um, I, I don't want to excuse that at all in any shape, form, or fashion. If, if you haven't heard someone say that the clergy abuse was despicable, I will say it. It was despicable. But in fact, uh, it's been said a lot. The popes have said it. Our bishops have said it. Uh, it is despicable. We all think it's despicable. And, and the, the church's position is that these priests who do these kinds of things uh, merit eternal damnation for them, right? So we're not, we're not giving the priests a pass because they're priests. Uh, if you commit a mortal sin and a grave offense of someone else's dignity, then you then you set yourself up for eternal torment, and that's that's what you deserve for that, and that would include these kinds of priests. Um, and, uh, and I would add that I think that some of those priests uh, definitely are worse moral actors by orders of magnitude uh, than likely your daughter, right, who has her own issues in life, but they're not those issues, and they're not nearly as bad, in my judgment, as what some of these priests have done. So... Uh, I definitely don't want to come to the defend the church for the things that, sh- that are indefensible. Um, in, in terms of your contention that the church rejects the homosexual and says, "Well, I don't want to accept being saved from drowning because you from you because you're gay," that's just not true. It's not the Catholic point of view. Maybe there is some bigoted Catholic who thinks that, but that's not the church's teaching. Um, and and as a practicing Catholic, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, I've got gay Catholic friends who are actively involved in the Catholic Church, and they have deeply seated homosexual inclination as part of their personality. And the Church doesn't accept them. I mean, excuse me, ju- does accept them, even in, regardless of what their internal disposition is. And and uh, in the same way, look, I I have my own moral hangups. Being gay isn't one of them. Uh, but I'm in confessional all the time, and I got all kinds of problems. And I'm very grateful that every time I go to the confessional and I say I'm sorry, I'm accepted by the church. And I, I have yet to be turned away from the confessional because of the enormity of my crimes. And you know, I've had some enormous ones over the years, right? Mm. And I've never been rejected by the church, and I've I've never known personally of any priest to turn away a gay person who who seeks the sacraments of the church with uh, with contrition and sincere faith. 
because of their sexual orientation. I'm, I'm not familiar with that ever happening. Now, maybe they're big into people who do that, but I've never seen that. What the church does teach is that whether you're gay or straight or whatever, mm. that the proper place to make use of your sexual faculty is within the sacrament of matrimony or within a valid marriage for the purpose of raising a family. And then outside of that, it's, uh, it's fornication or adultery. And that is a hard teaching to live by for, for many people, whether you're gay or straight. It's, it's, it's hard for straight people sometimes to do that. It's hard for gay people to do that. But that's the teaching of the church. And it's not, it's not, it doesn't single out gay people as targets, you know, for, uh, you know, on some sort of sexual crusade. It just says the use of the sexual faculty is to be restricted to a valid marriage for the purpose of raising a family. And look, there are a lot of straight Catholics that don't do that. Yeah. And, and they should go to confession. They should confess their sins. They should be reconciled to the church. The church doesn't reject them. It says, here, here are the means of grace. Come back to living a full Catholic life and with your moral life intact, even as it says that to gay people. Yeah. Jim, thanks so much uh, for your call. Appreciate that. Uh, Mike in North Carolina is referencing in his email uh, something that came up on yesterday's program, David. He says, yesterday you were surprised by a caller's claim that convalidation was taking a long time. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, my wife and I had our marriage convalidated a few months ago. After about nine months of preparation, there were no impediments. The priest knows us quite well. We did the minimal ceremony required, but it was still not something he was willing to do within a week or two. I know you're trying to reassure people going through this process, but perhaps the preparation varies by diocese, even if there are no impediments. I found the process refreshingly serious compared with our original marriage prep outside the church. Thanks, Mike in North Carolina. Yeah, well, I appreciate the the note. I really do. When my marriage was convalidated, it was literally a matter of calling up the, the, the my parish and the parochial vicar met us like the next Thursday. I mm. mean, it was it was it, it, there yeah. really was absolutely no delay at all once we made the decision to do it. It took us a little while to make up our minds what we we're going to do and to figure out the validity question of our marriage. But once we knew what was up, made the appointment and and and, and did the deed. All right now, perhaps in some dioceses they actually want those couples to go through the regular course of marriage preparation that they would put, you know, newlywed couples through. Maybe that's what happened in Could your be. case. And Could that'd be. be up to the pastor's discretion, I suppose. Mike in uh, North Carolina, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one that came in from Abel. Is it right to pray and ask the fire of the Holy Spirit to destroy our enemies? Hmm, yeah, good question. So there are, there is in Scripture uh, a genre of prayer in the Psalms called the imprecatory Psalms that pray exactly in this way. Break the teeth of the wicked, O Lord, and dash them against rocks and things of that sort. So you'll find that kind of language in Scripture. Um, Should we pray that way, intending the physical destruction of our human enemies? That's a that's a dicier proposition, and and the church, believe it or not, is pretty circumspect about the use of those imprecatory psalms in the liturgy for that reason, because mm. they don't want to encourage an attitude of vengeance in people. Um, and uh, and and one way of reading them, uh, the church has always read the psalms in the person of Christ, as if Christ were the one making the prayer, 
and and in that context would see the enemies of the church as the unseen spiritual forces of the heavenly realms that make war against our souls, right? And so that would be not only demonic spirits, but any kind of power or authority that would raise itself up against the knowledge of God and the good of souls. And they, these could be sort of abstract, ideological entities, that sort of thing. Um, and I have no problem praying those imprecatory psalms in that context. As to whether or not I literally want my neighbor's teeth break it broken in, mm, maybe I'd be a little hesitant on that mm, one. Yeah, maybe so. Abel, thanks so much uh, for your email. In a moment, we'll be talking with Amanda in Peoria, also Lloyd in Dubuque, Madison in Greenville, South Carolina, Jonathan in Indiana. Lots to come here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Ames. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Hey, congratulations going out to two more members of the EWTN radio family, and both stations are celebrating eight years with us. There's a Tri-State Catholic Radio in Jasper, Indiana. Also, the Benedictine Fathers of the Sacred Heart Mission, they have a great FM radio station in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Congratulations to both apostolates from all your friends here, <clears throat> excuse me, at EWTN Radio. All right, let's go to Amanda now in Peoria, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Amanda, what's on your mind today? Hi, um, how are you? Great, thanks so much for your call. What's up today? Yeah, yeah, so, you know, we um, obviously believe that Mary was assumed into heaven and didn't suffer death, but recently my husband and I were doing an online, like, rosary meditation that took, you know, each mystery piece by piece and kind of like had you meditate on multiple aspects of it. And one of them was, you know, on the Assumption of Mary, and it was saying that like the apostles went to Mary's grave and or her tomb and no one was there and they smelled flowers or something like that. And so that obviously made it a little confusing because it's like if she didn't suffer a death then how does she have a tomb yeah thanks i appreciate the question so you're 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 half right and half wrong you're you're right that catholics believe in the assumption of the blessed virgin mary you're not right in asserting that all catholics believe that she did not suffer death and in fact the question of the death of the blessed virgin is one that the magisterium has not determined and there are divergent traditions in the history of the Church on whether or not Mary physically died before the assumption of her body and soul into heaven. In the Eastern Church in particular, they liturgically celebrate what's called the Feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God, which is in fact her death. And so there are Catholic churches in the Byzantine Rite that celebrate the Dormition of the Mother of God. Now the tradition in the Latin West is, is primarily to see her as assumed living. And, and we, we're just going to live with the ambiguity because the Holy See is never going to decide between these two traditions. They're both part of Catholic life. The important point is that she was assumed body and soul into heaven. Whether or not she died, we'll ask her when we get there. Sounds like a plan. Amanda, thanks so much uh, for your call. Lloyd is listening in Dubuque, Iowa. Lloyd, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, uh, I'm just wondering with the uh, machines and the computers replacing replacing human labor. Uh, what are the married people going to do? They're supposed to multiply and 
So what are they going to do? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I am not an expert on technology by any stretch of the imagination, and I, I hesitate to embarrass myself by offering opinions on such a topic. Now, I'm not an expert in economics either, um, but I, I give you some thoughts, and you can laugh at my ignorance, okay? There are some concerns, I think legitimate concerns, about the role that artificial intelligence uh, it may pose in human society in the coming years. One of them is related to employment that you mentioned, and we can be a bit more specific about that. Uh, AI is a great threat to certain forms of intellectual property that make specifically certain kinds of creative endeavor uh, very problematic. I have uh, relatives that work in the arts, for example, and they're very concerned about the role that AI plays in image creation mm -hmm. uh, because the way it works is it'll you know, scour the internet and it will find images that are produced by artists and will copy them or come close enough to them to maybe pass copyright law, but it's, you know, they'll compose something in the style of so-and-so and so-and-so and, -so and then so-and-so is without a job because who needs to hire so-and-so if AI yeah. can do something in his style without his con mm -hmm. unique contribution. Same thing goes for music and actually radio hosts too, for that matter. Well, I'm thinking of my own sweetheart, Adrienne, who uh, has narrated a number of audiobooks over the years, Catholic and non-Catholic audiobooks. Um, I can tell you it's a real concern among audiobook narrators. It's a real concern among audiobook narrators. It's a concern on educators. Uh, you know, now, these days, you, you can't assign kids to write um, an essay uh, because uh, there's out, out of class because there's no guarantee the essay wasn't written by uh, artificial intelligence. I mean, I haven't messed around a lot with artificial intelligence, but I tried it out the other day, uh, one of the programs, and asked it to compose me an essay on, on Locke's theory of human understanding. And it, it really? wrote a really good freshman essay on really? Locke's theory of understanding. Yeah, wow. exactly. Um, so, you know, uh, I think uh, there's a p capacity, AI has a tremendous capacity to disseminate uh, misinformation that could have devastating social consequences, particularly if it's in the hands of a malevolent foreign power that's trying to influence, say, popular opinion in, on a political issue. And mm -hmm. you know, the ability to make it look like some public figure has said or declared something and to create very realistic images to that effect uh, and realistic narratives that, uh, that are hard to debunk. Um, and then, you know, another one is the, the uh, a machine that can pass the Turing test and, and seem to give, uh, you know, a semblance of sentience or self-awareness mm -hmm. um, threatens to blur people's intuitive uh, understanding of the importance of the dignity of the human person. Because if sentience is something that can be faked, so can virtual relationships. And you can imagine a world where we enter into these simulacra of relationships without ever connecting to real human beings because yeah. you have your little pet AI that you take around with mm -hmm. you. What that might do to personality and social psychology, you know, heaven only knows. Um, now, I, from, the, from the economic side, uh, and it seems to me that every technological innovation, innovation that we've had through the centuries has had a host of effects, good and bad, but generally has the effect of, of improving economic productivity overall, uh, which, which tends to increase, I mean, that tends to increase national wealth overall. And so, you know, we have today, I think, in the United States, we have the richest economy that the world has ever seen in human history. And while there are a lot of unemployed people, um, the number of people that can afford to, say, live off of the largesse of their families... I mean, we have just just gobs and gobs of 20-somethings that are spending their time playing video games in their mother's house, <laughs> which is, it, from one level, it's a kind of despicable waste of time. On the other hand, 
it, it would have been unthinkable 100 years ago in my grandfather's generation when they didn't have enough food. You know, yeah, I mean, like yeah. the idea that I could actually spend my time doing nothing and that the general economy was sufficient to support me and my indolence was an unthinkable proposition. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not saying that the prospect of mass unemployment is good, uh, but I do think that that uh, technological innovation does tend to improve productivity and economic well-being in the long run. A lot of things to think about there. Uh, Lloyd, thank you so much uh, for your call. It is called Communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Madison, a first-time caller in Greenville, South Carolina, watching us today on YouTube. Madison, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders. Hi, Tom. Um, thank you Thank you for taking my call. Uh, love the show. I have been going back and forth with a friend of mine uh, on our differences of faith for about eight months now, um, and his reasons against the Catholic Church have become less and less. One of the major points of disagreement and confusion, and you know, I confess for me too sometimes, is this question of, of like council statements that tend to or seem to contradict each other. Um, and I just have this, I understand, you know, what constitutes an ex- Cathedra, ex-cathedra statement. I understand that sometimes, you know, when councils make pronouncements, they are, you know, speaking as a big context, a big historical context, you know, that doesn't necessarily apply to, you know, a modern pronouncement. But, like, things with Vatican II sometimes do seem to be so contradictory. Um, and I honestly have a, a hundred questions based on a conversation we had recently. But um, one in particular was this question of, like, Jewish salvation and and what salvation looks like for the Jews and the Jewish covenant and how that applies today. Um, And I was, yeah, wondering, we're definitely going to talk about it again, so I was just wondering if uh, you could help me. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the question. So, you know, just to clarify one point, the, the, the Second Vatican Council didn't define any dogma of the Catholic faith. So it, it, it is different from other ecumenical councils, almost all of which were, in fact, concerned with defining dogmas. The Second Vatican Council was interested, it was a catechetical council, the purpose of which was to think about how to articulate the faith in the modern world and to confront the unique problems of modernity, one of which is the issue of religious pluralism, which is particularly acute given the horrors of the Holocaust and the way that anti-Semitism and Christian attitudes towards Judaism in the past may have led to or contributed in some respect to uh, really gross injustices against the Jewish people. And so all that, of course, plays into that theological analysis. Uh, But the larger question you're asking about is the question of doctrinal development. And if you treat the councils the way that fundamentalists treat the Bible— then you're going to run into problems. And how do fundamentalists treat the Bible? Well, they, they take the text of Scripture as if it is literally true at face value in its denotative sense, the way the man on the street would understand any individual phrase taken out of context, and that it, it works as a kind of, um, uh, there's a kind of system that could be derived from those texts, and the job of the interpreter is simply to derive the propositions and then line them up in a systematic order so that they can all shown to be coherent, right? If that's the way you view the Bible, you're in trouble because the Bible doesn't function that way. Well, they're, they're what you might call council fundamentalists, too, that, that take the, the, the language of councils in the same way, and then they, they're looking for that kind of consistency. 
I don't think that's the way the church thinks about the way dogma works and the way it works in the life of the faith. I mean, dogma, to begin with, doesn't save us. The Catechism says that dogmas don't save us. The realities to which they point save us. And dogmas are lights. They, they illumine our path and make it secure. So the dogma is a way, it's a kind of way of evoking an orientation in the world that ultimately is meant to conform to the way that Christ was in the world. So when we talk about the dogma of the Trinity, for example, one of the things that evokes in us is the awareness that Christ is a person who is in intimate relationship with the Father, who's also God, and that in Christ we can share the divine nature and also enter into intimacy with, with God the Father. So it's not, it's not just an abstraction stated to be part of a geometric proof. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a spiritual reality rendered dogmatically so that we can enter into the mystical truth that's that's indicated thereof and have a transformative experience in sure, our knowledge of Jesus. Sure. And, and uh, you know, and so it's not, my belief in the formula doesn't save me. My encounter with the realities to which the formula points is what saves me. And and the the verbal articulation of any particular dogma, even if true, is always going to be insufficient to capture the underlying reality. And so as we run into new contexts, new spiritual experiences, and new moral realities, it is legitimate to go back to the roots of the faith and to... Uh, and to seek what does it mean to live this truth in this different context. Uh, and the Church recognizes that there is a hierarchy of truths. That doesn't mean that one truth is more true than another, but it means that some are more foundational to what it means to be a Christian than others, and they, they, you interpret the one in light of the other. Things like the existence of God and the divinity mm-hmm. of Christ and the reality of the dignity of the human person, I mean, these are foundational principles. And, uh, and understanding exactly what it means to live those out through the centuries can take on a developmental approach. The scripture itself exhibits this. I mean, we find, we find development in the moral ideas of the Bible, um, and uh, from the Old Testament to the New. And the nice thing about being Catholic is that Christ gave us a living magisterium. So we're not limited to the exegesis of texts, whether it be biblical or conciliar texts. We have scripture, we have the texts, we have the tradition, and we have a living magisterium that we believe is guided by the Holy Spirit so that we can trust that we have an authentic development and an authentic interpretation. Madison, is that helpful for you? That is uh, very helpful. I guess I would just um, maybe want a little bit of further clarification than like how we as lay people ought to read, you know, older documents um, and how we should take them. I don't know if this makes sense, um, but but how... Not how seriously we should take them, but... I, got, but I understand we, what you're saying. I know exactly what you're talking about because I've been there. I, I, know, I know the existential position that you're in. All right. And one thing I can tell you is the more you do it, the better you get at it, right? The, the more you expose yourself to the Catholic tradition, the better sense you have for the way the tradition functions as an, as an organic reality. Okay. And I, I give you an example that's not dogmatic, but I think it's on point. Um, uh, anytime somebody picks up the works of Teresa of Avila, doctor of the church and great mystic of the church, or any mystic, and the mystics are like, they're not slow to give you their formula, you know, do this, do this, do this, have this experience, have that experience, catalog it in this way. 
and you, you pick up Teresa of Avila or someone like that, and you read her and you think, oh my gosh, this is quite a project. I've got to really set about recapitulating all the steps of, of Teresa's interior spiritual journey. And did I have the prayer of quiet? You know, was it the, was it the, 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 the <laughs> after dinner prayer? Or, you know, which one of these uh, like abstruse theological concepts applies at this moment in my spiritual journey? And have I hit all those benchmarks in exactly the right order? And, you know, did I have quite the same phenomenal experience of the Holy Spirit on day on Wednesday that she had on Wednesday, you know, and, and then, and then you pick up some other mystic and you realize that they have a completely different framework. And you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, mm-hmm. now I see, now yes. I see, right? And and you begin to get a sense for what was really transformative in Teresa's experience, and what what did she have the skill to articulate in language? And and ultimately, what really matters, and she would tell you this: what really matters is, can I have the heart towards God and neighbor that Teresa had, right? Yeah. And and her her technical apparatus is useful. But it's not ultimately normative, right? What's normative is that transformation of character. And, uh, and you know, when I read the fathers, for example, they, they can make really creative use of Scripture, and they can come up with allegories and that, that, that really strain credibility. And you're like, really? You really think that's what the text means? Uh, and then you realize that the New Testament kind of does that too. Like there's a, there's a kind of play with the text and the tradition but it's ultimately driven by this much deeper concern to be transformed in the likeness and image of Jesus, right? And that's why the, the Church tells us that you, you can't take any of these things in isolation. You, you take them as part of an organic whole. You read them in line with the Church, the Spirit of Christ, um, and ultimately with the aim of being transformed in the likeness and image of Christ. Madison, you may want to uh, let your friend know about today's podcast. It'll be available for you in about uh, two or three hours or so, as soon as the uh, Internet uh, passes it on through. The address for that, uh, EWTN.com slash radio, EWTN.com slash radio. Look for the word podcast, and I'm sure you'll find it very quickly. Thanks again for your phone call. Coming up uh, on uh, most of these EWTN stations in a few minutes, it'll be EWTN Open Line Tuesday with our Tuesday host. Father Wade Menezes of the Fathers of Mercy. Today, Father is going to be unpacking the archangels and the guardian angels as his springboard topic. Do check that out at 3 p.m. Eastern on most of these EWTN stations with Father Wade. Open Line Tuesday coming up next uh, on a lot of stations, uh, coast to coast and around the world. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Jonathan, a first-time caller in Indiana, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Jonathan, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Uh, well, it's a, a really kind of a couple of uh, part questions. One is that uh, listen to Dr. Anders earlier about the the uh, 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 the uh, reconciliation uh, and and, and uh, forgiveness and, and going to confession, whether it's, whether you're gay or or or, uh, or, or straight. Uh, are we in danger of, of uh, really abusing the sacrament? If you're if you're gay and you and you confess today and you say your story, but you're back, you go back home. You're and you're still uh, behaving. So uh, that's one. The other one is that uh, since uh, Dr. Andrews, uh, I understand that you're a convert to the faith. Uh, how do the uh, fundamentalists and Baptists in the church, uh, the brothers and sisters, uh, ignore uh, the uh, uh, the Gospel of John on on the Eucharist? 
uh, you must uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I know it didn't go too well back then. And uh, finally, Nick, in terms of, uh, I've got a lot of uh, uh, preachers and uh, uh, Protestants and evangelical around where we live. Uh, got close friends in Illinois and Indiana border. And it uh, seems like a lot of them are uh, the ones I'm familiar with. I haven't run into anybody who's not, has a $2 million home and, and uh, got a net worth of at least quite a few million. Doesn't have to be a mega church, but uh, do they go into uh, into their their building a church to acquire uh, people to come to church, or is it uh, the money gets kind of get lost in the shuffle somewhere down there? Yeah, thanks. I can speak to those questions. I appreciate them. On the first question, is is it an abuse of the sacrament to encourage homosexuals to go to confession if you have a kind of well-founded expectation that they're going to go back and sin again and then just come back and keep continually seeking confession. Um, it is not an abuse of the sacrament. It's what the sacrament is for. And what you described of homosexuals could be applied to any Catholic in any sin. And um, so, you know, I'm not gay, uh, but I have found myself going to confession many, 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 many times for the same fault. And in spiritual theology, they talk about knowing your predominant fault. And the predominant fault is, among other things, the one that you keep going back to confession for. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so so you, the Church recognizes a, dis, a difference between perfect contrition and attrition. It's possible to have perfect contrition, to genuinely be just heartrendingly sorry that you have offended God and separated yourself from Him. It's also possible to just know in a kind of general way that this was a bad thing and I'll have consequences and so I really ought to have been my life. And they're both sufficient for the validity of confession. And see, the confessional can become an occasion of healing through its regular practice. If you genuinely are contrite, if you really are sorry, you don't want to do this thing again for whatever reason, and you keep bringing it to the confessional, um, you, it, 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 it begins to shape the penitent's thoughts about his behavior or her behavior. And, uh, and if it's, you fall in a situation like the one you described, where you just keep going over and over and over again, eventually, I mean, you just kind of become disgusted with yourself. And you're like, I don't want to go back to Father again and tell him I did that thing yeah. one more time. <laughs> and that itself can become a motive for change. Uh, but that, of course, re really requires a relationship to be built with the, with the confessor and the penitent. And, and that fact alone, the fact of a priest who is willing to sit there and treat you with charity and mercy, when you probably hate yourself and you're disgusted with yourself and you can't stand yourself, and for a priest to receive you with, without, he, he judges the act, of course, but he doesn't judge you and say you're a bad person and I hate you and go away. And he, he receives you with mercy. The, the confessional can be the tribunal of Christ's mercy. That also can be a powerful motive for change. If you can't change for yourself, sometimes you can change for the love of another person. I have known priests like that. And I've known priests that were obnoxious and, and, and judgmental and, and unyielding and unfriendly, and you don't want to go to those priests. But I've also known priests whose, whose care and solicitude for me personally has made me feel like I may not want to change for me, but I want to change for him because he's so good to me. I don't yes. want to disappoint him. you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to get your moral life in order. It's not easy. And whether you're gay or straight, but the area of sexuality is one where it touches the deepest aspects of our personality and our personal history. And, and it's, a, it's a mystery to many people, and me included. 
and knowing how to reform that area of your life can, can really just be an agonizingly difficult thing for many people. And thank God the church extends literally infinite degrees of mercy. And Christ said, you know, we don't just forgive once. We forgive 70 times, seven times. As many times as the penitent comes back, we, we offer absolution. Thank God for that. Um, how do fundamentalists get around John 6? Uh, they call it a metaphor or a symbol. Right, and they they would quote John. He says the flesh counts for nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. Um, and I think they're wrong about that, but that's how they do it. Finally, are there Protestants who go into the ministry because they want to acquire wealth? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, is that most of them? No, no. I mean, Protestant ministers in general are not particularly well-paid individuals. They can be if they have large congregations and big denominations, mm. but it's not. You know, if you if you're into wealth acquisition, that's not generally the way. There's there's subsets of Protestantism, the health and wealth movement, Pentecostalism, where that that kind of acquisitive thing may be more prominent. Uh, and I'll look. You know, Catholic priests are supposed to live simple lives. Um, there have been Catholic priests who have venally and immorally amassed great personal wealth through the conduct of their ministry, sometimes in deceitful ways, and 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 that's very bad, and that's a sin, and they, you know, they might lose their salvation accordingly. But yeah. acquisitiveness and greed are not limited to Protestant clergy. I mean, no. all of us are subject to them, including Catholic priests, and you know, we've. Had quite a few popes. Ever been to the the Palace of the Popes in Avignon, France? Ooh. I mean, it's kind of hard to (laughs) think that there wasn't a bit of acquisitiveness going on in those days. Just a little bit. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for your call. Elizabeth in Oregon, we have about 30 seconds left. What's your question? Hi. I always thought that the shamrock was a good tool for explaining the Holy Trinity, and I just heard you say today that it's not. So can you explain that, please? Oh, yeah, because it suggests tritheism. And what would that be? Right, that there are three gods, right? Oh, because, okay. the, because the distinctions between the leaves of the shamrock are substantial <laughs> distinctions, and they're, or they're, they're parts of a whole, and the, the persons of the Trinity are not parts of a whole. Okay. Well, there it is, Elizabeth. Glad we could get your call in uh, kind of at the last moment there. A forester is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Unfortunately, couldn't get to his question. Also, Micah on YouTube has a great question. And we'll also tackle next time, uh, Lisa wants to know the the origin of Catholics crossing themselves. Do you know that? I do. What is it? What, real quick. Well, according to Tertullian, it's of apostolic provenance. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's very, 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 very early in the church's tradition. Very good. And uh, Lisa, glad we could get that tackled for you. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thank you, Tom. We, we do this show Monday through Friday here on EWTN, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast, as we mentioned earlier, by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you tomorrow here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.